So hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 16. We're back in the resurgent series, continue to walk through the book of Acts. And um, before we jump into to the passage, which we're going to look at uh, majority of uh, chapter 16 today, um, yesterday we did our DE classes, which was a great experience. We have DE 1, uh, 3, and 4. And one of the things that we talk about at the beginning of those, that, that process and why we do the Discipleship Essentials classes is that Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew captures the, the kind of the high points of Jesus' teaching when he was walking the planet. And the supernatural reality of what we have in what maybe some of us take for granted sometimes, this thing called the Bible, is that through God's supernatural power, he inspired people to record history and his words to be captured in this thing called a book or the Bible. And then for the last 2,000 years, he sustained it for us so that when we open the scriptures, we are getting what they got 2,000 years ago. That's crazy. There's no book around that's like that, that is as accurate as what we have. And that means every Sunday or every moment that we come, maybe it's a time where we're having our devotions, where we open the Bible, we're, getting we're experiencing God's supernatural sustaining power for us today to learn and to grow and to follow him more. And he's given to us in, the, in his word. And so that's why we go through discipleship. That's why we're going through the book of Acts. God captured what happened to the church 2,000 years ago because he wants us to understand it. And so even though it seems like just a, a routine or a, or a kind of a physical um, practice of reading the Bible and studying the Bible, it's a supernatural reality. And that means that you and I have to approach the scriptures with humility every time. God, what are you saying to us today? What does it mean for us? How do we live this out? Because it isn't just about knowledge that we get. It's about the transformation of the Holy Spirit who works inside of us in conjunction with God's word to help us to live it out. So I get excited when we get to open the Bible because it's more for us to learn and understand about what Jesus is wanting us to do and what he's calling us to. So this morning we're going to talk about um, kind of discovering or understanding the secret of, of finding God's will in our life. And you're like, oh, that's a great mystery. I don't know what God's will is. Or like, oh, I've, I'm past God's will or whatever you are, wherever you are with God's will in your life. And that's usually like the big question that we all have, right? What's God's will for my life? Ever asked that question or been asked that question or thought that question? Okay, three of you, the rest of you have figured it out or you're completely lost. I don't know which one it is. We'll find out. But th this is something that we, we, if you've said yes to Jesus, there's always that question of, God, what, what do you have for my life? And this morning we're going to look at a story that is in Acts 16 that kind of gives us a different understanding of the way that we kind of discover and come about what God's purpose is for us. And to kind of understand that when we say God's will, it's almost kind of this daunting phrase that's kind of a, either mysterious or overwhelming. But what is God's will? And here's the simplest definition, the simplest, easiest working definition of how you describe God's will. It's God's desired outcome for your life. That's what God's will is. And that isn't something that is just long term. That's every day. What is God's desired outcome for my life today, for tomorrow, for next year, for 50 years from now, for whatever it is? What is God's desired outcome? That is what his will is, what he desires for our lives. And that's something he wants us to be in line with and discover in each one of our lives. And so this morning, we're going to look at a story where uh, Paul and Silas, after, if you were here last week, we talked about the sad part of the gospel, or the, the book of Acts, where Paul and Barnabas separate, and then so Paul now is, is partnered with a guy named Silas, and now they're off to do what God's called them to do, and so they, they, they journey through some different places and finally end up in a city called Philippi, which we'll talk about, but the journey that they're on to where they get to is as important as what they end up discovering where God's called them to be. But before we, we jump into the specifics of kind of unpacking the passage and looking at it, 
one of, there's some, some assumptions or some kind of prerequisites or some, um, some givens about what we understand about God's will. Because when we talk about God's will or God's desired outcome, so many times we like to make whatever we want to be God's will for our life and not let him be it be what is his will is for us anybody know what i'm talking about we like to say okay god this is what i want you to do so this is your will for my life without really listening god is this what you want for me so with with that understanding there's some some assumptions about god's desired outcome for our life let me just read these three things because these need to be kind of the context for when we're talking about god's will or his desired outcome they always fit within these things first thing is this god's will or his desired outcome for my life is always connected to god's will for the world we live in the world on purpose, and that means that whatever God is up to in our lives has to do with the world around us. We don't live in a bubble. We don't live in a vacuum. We don't live isolated from the world, and so whatever God's doing in us is related to what God's doing in the world. It's a bigger picture. Second thing, God's will is always about engaging the world instead of isolating from it. These are really important because we've the reason I'm t touching on these is I've had people come to me and with these, these kind of understandings that their, their understanding of that, that God's will for them is isolated from the world. God's, world. God's will for them is different than what he's doing in the world. But when you read through the Bible, that's never the case. And then the other thing that's really important is God's will for our, our lives begins the moment you're born and ends the moment you die. Like, God has a will for a baby? God has a will for someone who's just before they were supposed to pass away? Yeah, he does. He does, because God chooses the times and places where we live, and God determines how long we live for because he's God, and that means he has a purpose from the moment we're born to the moment we die. We don't get to say, okay, I'm done. I get to now retire from God's purpose. No, that's called death. That, that's, in his, that's his thing. So I want you to understand that because as we walk through this, we, we have to make sure that we're allowing God to define what his ultimate desire and outcome for our life looks like. So with that understanding, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to start, we're going to go through Acts 16, but we're going to kind of take our time going through each, some of the verses, and then I'll read some of the passages together. But again, so Paul is, is connected with Silas now. They're headed off to go do what God's called them to do, which is another missionary journey to reach more people with the gospel. So they set out on this journey, and the first thing that you and I will discover about the secret to discovering God's will or his desired outcome for us is that we have to seek God's will in motion. So this is uh, something that you and I struggle with because if you're like me, wouldn't you just like to sit down one day and say, God, would you lay out the roadmap for my life and just drop it in my lap? Anybody with me? I wish it was that easy and that clean. It never is that way. But listen to what it says in the, in, look at verse 6 in Acts 16 because the first part of verse 6 says, it says this, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So they're set out and they're in motion already. They're not sitting there waiting. They're actually moving forward because they know their life is already about what God's wanting to do in the world, and that is sharing the gospel with people. So they're, they're already moving forward on that. If you were here a month or so or two months ago, my dad spoke. He, he used this phrase that we have been given a go spirit, which means when you say yes to Jesus, God's spirit lives inside of you, and the default for the spirit is to go to be in motion, to be discovering what God is up to. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas are doing. They're actually in motion. They're moving forward. And that's important for us because we, we have a tendency to want to just wait. And there's moments where God will call us to wait, but that's when God calls us to wait, not for us to wait. We, we have to wait on the Lord. Yes, but I don't think our issue is waiting on the Lord. I think our issue is that we're afraid to go. Because we always want to have the roadmap, but God never gives us a roadmap. He always gives us a heading. He says, this is north, south, east, west. This is the direction you're going. I'm not going to give you the roadmap. Why does God not give us the roadmap? I know why, because we'll mess it up. 
We will. He's not going to give us turn-by-turn directions. He says, go. Your default is go, and I'll just point the general direction, and you have to follow me when I give you a new heading. And that's what they were experiencing. And I think for some of us, we, we haven't experienced God's outcome for our life in the fullness yet. We haven't experienced truly living because there is something in us that dies when we're sedentary in our faith, when we don't move forward, when we don't risk, that we don't go after things. Christians are a lot like sharks. Sharks have to stay in motion. They do, because when water flows through their gills, they capture oxygen that keeps them alive so they can breathe. The moment they stop swimming is the moment they stop breathing. The moment the Christian stops moving forward is the moment you and I begin to die. Because we're created to go. We're never created to stay. And so because of that, if we're going to discover what God wants us to do, we have to be in motion. And if you've been at our church for a long time, you've heard me say this a million times. You can't steer a parked car. You remember when you were a kid and you sat in your parents' car and you took the wheel and there was, it was just sitting in the driveway and you turned it and the wheels would turn just a little bit? Did you ever change direction? No. You just turned the wheel. But what, what is required to change direction? Momentum. Motion. And the same thing is if we want God's will for our life, there has to be some momentum in our life that God can guide and direct. Because if you and I are not going to go because we're waiting for God to tell us, we won't go when he does tell us. There has to be this default to go, to be in motion. It's not busyness. It's not trying to fill our lives with things, but it's this, this momentum that moves forward into what God may be doing in my life. And so Paul and Silas are in motion. So as they're in motion, look at the going on in verse 6 and verse 7. The second thing about God's will and discovering it is that you and I are, need to have this default. Go until you get a no that leads toward a yes. So look, going on in verse 6, it says, They went, on the, they went to, uh, through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Anybody ever read these verses? You read that and think, that just sounds crazy. They want to go tell people about the love of God through Jesus, and Jesus says, nope, not doing it. And then they tried again. They're like, nope, the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going here. There's these, these closed doors. They're getting no's as they're in motion. You can't get a no if you're not in motion, by the way, because there's nothing to say no to because you're not going anywhere. But if you're in motion, God can say, okay, you know what? I know your heart is right, and that's the direction you're heading, but I have something else in mind, so I'm going to close that door, and then I'm going to close that door. Anybody ever had a door closed in front of you? Isn't that frustrating? Did you know that many times the doors that close in front of us are just as much of an answer to our prayers than a yes would be? But we only think the only, the only answer that God ever gives is yes. No, he actually says no. And he says no not to create some dead end to frustrate us. He actually reaches us to a point where he says no, he's actually getting our attention. Because we'll see as this unfolds, the two no's that Paul and Silas get are leading them to eventually, they're going to get a yes. But now God's got their attention. When God says no and he puts up a roadblock, you and I need to listen. God, why are you saying no? Because eventually he's leading to a yes. He doesn't lead his people to a dead end to frustrate them. He will lead us to a dead end to guide us and direct us and get our attention. You remember in the Old Testament when he led Israel out of Egypt? Where's the first place he led him to? The Red Sea, which seemed like what? An absolute dead end. God led them there for a purpose. Why? So he could create an opportunity for them. Same thing is true for us today. So in our journey as a church, when we move from the Shasta property here it's coming up actually in June. It'll be four years that we've been in this building, which is crazy. Time flies. 
But as we went through that journey, many of you are familiar with it, but, but w- our first default when we were leaving the Shasta property was to look for another leased facility. That's what we only thought we could do. And so in that process, our leadership, the church council, we were praying about that and moving, and so I talked to our realtor, and so we were lining up different leased properties to look at. And I remember there were two of them that we really seriously went after. I remember the first one we went after was 17,000 square feet next to Costco. In fact, we, we, we thought, this, is gonna, this will work for us. It's good. There's, we can do the build-out. Uh, of course, the city was like, you're probably going to have to do some kind of a traffic study, which is going to cost you a lot of money because there's already a lot of traffic around Costco. So we're like, okay, we'll do that. So I remember we actually put a formal offer together, and we submitted it to the owners of the building, thinking, okay, this is it. This is, this is going to work well for the church. Everybody can go get hot dogs at Costco after church, right? It's going to be a great deal. And they literally said no. It wasn't like a counter came back. They just closed the door. I'm like, okay, I guess that means we're not moving there. So then there was another property in a similar area, but a little bit differently, about, I think, 14,000 square feet. And so it was two stories. We went and we looked at it. We walked through it, and I thought, well, this has possibility. This is maybe even a little bit more affordable. And so as we're going through it, we, pulled, we called in our architect and our general contractor to say, hey, what do you think of this space? And so we started walking around it. We thought there's great, great possibilities. And then when we went up and down the stairs, we discovered it was missing a really important element that a two-story building has to have. It's called an elevator. And the average elevator costs at least $100,000 to put in. And so when we looked at that, we're like, uh, I don't think this is going to work. To put a $100,000 elevator in somebody else's building that we won't even get to recoup the cost of. So the door closed. I'll be honest, I was a little discouraged because we were on a time crunch coming out of Shasta. And so I'm thinking, Lord, what are you doing? Anybody ever felt like that? It's like, why do you keep leading us to dead ends? You know that our back is against the wall and we got to move. And that next week, our realtor, his name's Doug Shaw, he calls me and said, you got to come check out this building. I'm like, oh, no, here we go, another one. He goes, no, no, this one's different. This one's even better. And I remember you guys said, what's better? He goes, you could buy this building. I'm like, you're crazy. <laughs> we can't even lease these two properties, and now you're talking about buying. And you know, some of you know the story. Long story short, that side is leased out, so we, we make income, which actually, so we went from $21,000 a month lease to a $3,000 mortgage payment on this building, a miracle of God. But we got two no's before we got a yes. And the yes was not a yes that I was going to say yes to. God said no to two places because he knew this was sitting vacant waiting for our church to occupy it. That's the way God works. But you and I, if we're in motion, it's okay to get a no. A no is an indicator that God is at work and there's a yes coming. But you have to be patient in the no's that God is continuing to move us forward. So seek God's will in motion. Go until you get a no that eventually will lead to a yes. And then there's a third thing. Look at verses 8 through 10. The secret of discovering God's will uh, is no eventually leads to yes. This is the way God works. So verses 8 through 10, it says, So passing through Mysia, they went down to, to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So when you, th- you think about this, so there's the yes that God has, but Paul and Silas get the two no's. Why? Because after they get the second no, in a dream or a vision, God comes to Paul and says, this is where the yes is. But because Paul and Silas were already in motion, God shows up. He's got their attention. They're leaning in and they're listening to what he's saying. So they get this yes, and now they know where they're going. They're not going to get a no because God has opened the door for them. 
But there's something about in the, in the process of getting knows, God knows he has our attention. God knows that our, our, our disposition is to move forward, is to go, is to, be, is to say yes. And so he's going to speak to us when, when we feel like the doors are closing because he's doing it for a reason. So when, when I graduated from college and Kim had already graduated and now we were going to launch into where God had what we thought God had called us into ministry. And so we were, we were kind of looking at opportunities and trying to figure out where God was leading us. And so I remember we really didn't have a sense of clarity about where God was calling us. So we decided in the Southern California area, we just started to said we're going to start visiting churches, four square churches that might have ministry opportunity for us. And we started out in the Caneo Valley. So we started visiting different four square churches. And we visited each Sunday. We kind of, you know, would go for a week and then maybe a week or two, depending on it. We would get to know the pastor, kind of figure out what's going on. And, and I'll tell you, it was really discouraging. Either there was no ministry opportunity or literally there was no church. There was a Sunday morning that we went to a church, a four-square church that, that is now, it's a thriving, great four-square church now. But th- when we went, we called and we heard on, on their answering machine, they didn't even have a website at that time, that their service was like at 10 o'clock, and so we're like, hey, we're going to show up, and the pa- we got the pastor's name somehow, and so we showed up, and when we walked into the sanctuary, there was like nobody, and we were like right on time, we're like, oh, this is not good, did we miss the service time? And then I remember about five minutes later, two other people came in, and then the service started. So Kim and I looked at each other and thought, we just doubled the attendance of this church this Sunday. And then uh, the pastor's wife and her son came out, and they led worship, and it was great. It was four of us and the two of them on the stage, and she played guitar, and then the pastor came out, and he preached like the room was filled with 500 people, even though there was four of us, and then he finished, and he walked off, and he disappeared. And I tracked his wife down because I could find her because there was only five or six people there, and I said, where's the pastor? She said, oh, he, he, when he's done preaching, he goes back to his study. I said, okay, I'm just out of Bible college. Like, this is the way they do it, I guess. You know, you don't talk to the five people that showed up or include two of them, your family. But so we walked away. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's a no. And then we went to another church where the pastor was over anxious and he was going to give me everything. It looked like he wanted to retire on the spot. I'm like, whoa, thanks. No, no, thanks. And so we kept going and we're like, God, we're, what are we supposed to do here? And I was starting to think, man, I'm I, don't, I know I was, Kim was working out at a zoo specific. She was making good money. I thought, do we just need to stay where we are? And I, but I was working a part-time job, and I wasn't, that's not what I'm, I didn't go to college for this. I didn't, I felt called to ministry. What am I supposed to do? And I'm getting frustrated. Then in the middle of this, yeah, amen to that. <laughs> Thanks, perfect timing. In the middle of this, I get a phone call from a guy named Dennis Easter, who is currently my boss and was going to be my future boss. And he said, listen, so this is similar. He said, last night, the Lord woke me up. Kind of sounds similar, doesn't it? And said to me, you need to call John Ampstead's. Now, Dennis and I had, had a little history. Dennis had married Kim and I, and Kim had been in a part of the church that he was pastoring for some years. And so he said, I just, the Lord just put on my heart, we have a youth pastor opening. And the Lord said, I'm supposed to call you. Now, Dennis and I had not had any ministry experience, but he said, the Lord just said, call John. Of course, he didn't know all that was going on in our life, and so, long story short, I interviewed, and we ended up getting on staff there, but it was in the middle of that frustration, feeling like, God, is there any opportunity? Is there anything that you're doing? And right in the middle of that, God invades, knowing that our, our disposition was, well, Lord, we're going to seek, and we're going to search, and we're going to look for what you're doing in our life, and guess what? He opens the door. 
And I could tell you three or four other times in our life where there's key moments where we start into motion, and as we go in motion, there are a lot of walls that we kept hitting, and finally God says, since you're in motion, I'm going to show you where you're going. I know your heart is in the right place. So understanding you know, the secret of God's will means that eventually he's going to give a yes, but that means we have to be in motion, and you have to be ready for a no. There are no's that God brings. But, but then there's three other things from this passage that I want to touch on. That is, what does God's will look like? And this is where it can get kind of surprising. The first one is this. Look at verses 19 through 24. Because God's will is harder than you think. Now, th- we'll go through this passage, but the reason I say that is because normally we think that God's will is always the easiest path. It's the path of least resistance, right? That's what, I don't know how many times I've known this in my life too, but people will say to me, God just keeps opening doors. Things just keep falling in my lap, and that happens. But that isn't always necessarily God's will, because when you actually follow God's will and you arrive to where God wants you to be, it's always going to be a challenge, because you live in a world that is doing anything but God's will. And the prince of the power of the air, which is the enemy, does not want God's desired outcome for the world or for your life. So challenges happen. So listen to happens. Look at verse 19. So they, 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 they listen to the vision. They go to this place called uh, Philippi. And some amaz- amazing things begin to happen there. But as a result of the amazing things, this is what happens to them. It says, but when, in verse 19, it says, when her owner, so a slave girl has been set free, some great stuff is happening. When her owner saw that the, the hope of, of gain was gone, they had cast a demon out of a woman who was a fortune teller, so their, her owners couldn't make any money. It says, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace uh, with, uh, the ru- uh, before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They had advocated customs that are not lawful for us uh, as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Don't you love God's will? (laughs) Just for a moment, could you imagine what that was like? So you go to this city, and, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but already they've connected with a group of people that's going to start the church at Philippi, which is a significant church. This slave girl has been set free. So stuff, can you imagine, like, yeah, we're here. Look at this. The church is starting. We've, this woman's been freed from a demon, and then, boom, the bottom drops out. Just for a moment, wouldn't you just think, okay, God, really? It would have been better when those two no's, could you have opened one of those options? Because I'm sure it didn't include getting beaten and thrown into prison and awaiting a a certain death the next day. So they end up in this. So we would say, well, that wasn't God's will for their life. Absolutely was God's will for their life. That was God's desired outcome for Paul and Silas because we'll see in just a moment, this is all part of what God was doing. But this is difficult for us because our interpretation of God's outcome for our life is problem-free, pain-free, suffering-free. That's God's will for our life. But it's not. It's not. I wish that it was. I wish that we gave our life to Jesus and all of our problems disappeared. And all of our challenge in the world went away. But actually, usually the opposite is true. That's it's important for us. Listen to some reminders from other passages of scriptures written by Paul himself. He says in Philippians 1.29, which by the way, which was written from Paul to the city he's in and out, to the church a number of years later, he says this, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. 
you didn't know that suffering was a privilege, did you? No, we don't look at it that way. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 2 to 5. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This, it's, tu it's tough. It's like, man, isn't there an easier way? Could it be possible that doing God's will is harder than not doing God's will? I think so. Remember when Jesus prayed to the Father, and we, this, this, we celebrate this this week. Jesus said, if there's another way, if there's another way that you can accomplish the redemption of all things, let's take that option. But then what did Jesus say? Not my will, not my desired outcome, but he says to the Father, your desired outcome be done. Your will be done. Was it suffering for Jesus? Yeah, Jesus had to go through a lot of suffering. So that means for, for us, the moment you see suffering does not necessarily mean that's not the way you're supposed to go. Especially if God's given you a compass setting and said, go this way. Don't, don't expect it's going to be an easy road. But I'll tell you, it's going to be the road that God has you on. And guess what? When it's the road that God has you on and you go through suffering, you are directly uh, connected to God's will and outcome for the world. And that's the most important thing. Because at, at the end of your life, you may be able to say a lot of great things about your life. You are a great parent. You are a great business person. You are a great mom. You are a great student. You are a great, great career. All those are great things, and those are wonderful things. But at the end of the day, what, what do you and I want to be said of us by the, one that, the only one that matters? Is well done, good and faithful servant. We just talked about that yesterday in DE4 when Jesus was saying that, the, the master is saying that, he's saying that because he's saying it to a group of people, two in particular, that risked everything to gain more so they could return it back to their master. That's what we're looking for. Because it, when you and I are in eternity, we're not going to look back on our career and think, man, that was really something. We're not going to care. The things that we thought are so important in this life are not going to matter because you can't take it with you. The only thing that you can take with you is people. That's it. That's the only thing that's going to be absolutely fulfilling about this world in the next world is to look around and to see all the people who embrace Jesus and now get to spend eternity with us and with him. That's what it's about. In fact, you and I need to understand that many times an indicator that you are headed in the right direction is when you hit resistance. Not always, but when you hit resistance. That's why Jesus says this, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate uh, is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are, are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Don't you wish it was the other way around? I would love like a nice six, you know, six lane paved highway, you know, with wide lanes and, you know, you know, carpool lane with nobody in it. You know what I'm talking about? It's the little narrow road that's bumpy and difficult and has turns and danger. That's the road that leads to life. That's the road that leads to God's will in our life. Second thing, verse 25, look at verse 25. God's will is different than you expect. It is. I, I've never come to a place in my life where I've thought, this is exactly what I thought would happen. Because if it is, 
it's my will. It's because that's what I wanted to happen. In fact, look what it says in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I don't know if the Bible just doesn't record it, but you never, ever hear them complaining. I'm convinced that when they came to a city to preach the gospel, when Paul and Silas were doing what they were doing, they came in knowing that they were going to present the gospel, but they didn't know what was going to happen. They just trusted God would do what he's going to do. And that's when you read through the book of Acts. Every time they show up, it's either a miracle or it's persecution or it's both. And it's all this variety of different things. And so they didn't have this agenda that this is going to be what God's exactly going to do. So that means when they're now at probably what we would say the worst moment of our lives, what is their response? Worship. Not complaint. Not woes me, look at me, I've, let, I've sacrificed everything for Jesus and now look at where it got me. None of that. They're worshiping. Why? Because they didn't have this agenda that they brought to the table that said this is what it's supposed to be. They had, been a t- they had been up against a number of dead ends in their life, realizing that a dead end didn't matter to God. God's going to advance his purpose no matter what. So they're just waiting in prison for what God's going to do next. If you and I would lower, not lower, but we would lay down our expectations of what we think God's will looks like for our life, you and I would be pleasantly surprised. Because I want God's will, his outcome for my life, to look different than anything that I could come up with. Because it'll be better. It'll be better. That's the way that God works in our lives. So in the midst of our struggles, while we're striving to fulfill God's will, do we question God's will? Sometimes we want to. And it's not wrong just because Paul and Silas didn't question. It doesn't mean that we can't. But there's those moments where we question. We have this ideal in life. This is what it's going to look like. And in each major stage of my life, I was reflecting this week, I had expectations. So when I planted a church in Ventura, we planted a church, I had expectations. If you were here last week, I told you, uh, one of the things I learned is that I thought I was going to save the world, only to find that I had all the wounded Christians in our community come to my church. It wasn't what my expectation was. It was difficulties. It was challenging. When we moved to Oregon, I had different ideas. I had ideas, again, that God's going to do great things, moving into a new ministry assignment. I didn't know that it was going to come along with severe allergies because I moved to the pollen capital of the world, known as the Willamette Valley. And for the first three years being in Oregon, it was a struggle every single year. I had to go through more intense treatment for my allergies. I had hives all over my body to the point sometimes I couldn't even walk. I was in so much pain. But I was like, okay, Lord, is this what I'm going to end up with? I moved to Oregon. This is supposed to be the promised land, and it's not because it rains all the time. It really does. If you don't believe me, go move there for a year, and Terry Hur will confer with you, right? It rains all the time. It's, it's, everyone's like, it's so green. There's a reason it's green. <laughs> and by the way, I heard some of you complain when it was raining so much this year, right? But it's green for at least a month in California, right? Isn't that good news? So every, and even when, when, when God moved on our hearts and then we ended up coming back to Southern California, we came back and we, and we took and, and began to pastor here. I had an idea of what I was walking into. And I'll be honest, I had no idea what I was walking into. <laughs> Those who have been a part of the journey of the church know that's why you're laughing. And it was filled with challenges. And there was a season in the life of our church about the first year, and I'm not joking, almost every single day that I was pastor of the church the first year, I would come into the office and go, okay, what's next? What else happened? Who else came off the, you know, what else came off the rails? What other financial crisis have we hit? Whatever, really, that was the way it was. And honestly, I got to the point where it didn't scare me anymore. I mean, what else could happen? The building could burn down. That would be a blessing, right? 
it, what it, it was, that was what I felt like. Of course, if I came in with, I had with this idea, this is, gonna, this is what's going to happen. Not what I expected. But man, every season of life I've gone through, I look back on it and say, God, thank God you didn't give me what I expected. Because it would have been far short of what you wanted to do. And that's how you and I know what God's will looks like. It's going to be different than you expect. It's going to be more difficult than you think it is. But the good news in all of this is this is the final thing. And I'll read some, some of the passages that we just kind of skipped over in, in this. But God's will is greater than you imagine. This is the good news. Because you and I can't orchestrate it. That's why it's God's will. Our outcome for our life can never come close to God's outcome for our life. So let me read a couple of things so you can see what's happening here. Look at verse 13 to verse 18, and then I'll read verse tw- uh, 26 to verse 34. So skipping back to before they get thrown into prison, this is what happens. Verse 13, it says, On Sabbath day we went outside the gates to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One uh, who heard was a woman named Lydia from a city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul or was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us stay, or saying, if you have uh, judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she uh, prevailed upon them. Going on in verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And then verse 18, at this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned around and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Can you just, you know, get annoyed at the devil and just turn around and just do business? Isn't that awesome? They just, so so you've got to, you got Lydia and her whole household getting saved, which, by the way, Lydia is the founding member of the Church of Philippi and her family. That's how the church starts, with a woman, by the way. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But then going on, so going on, skip down to verse 26. So remember, they're in prison, looks like a dead end. And then verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, which we were trying to replicate earlier, obviously. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer uh, woke, saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought uh, them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them at the same hour that night and washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into the house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Better than Paul and Silas could have imagined. There's no way that when they go to Macedonia and they end up in Philippi that they believe that there's going to be a slave girl freed, a church planted, and an entire Roman household get saved. It's not, that's not, they're not good enough to think that up. God is. And if you and I understand that's the way that God works, 
much like what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 20 and 21. Maybe when he wrote this, he was thinking what he experienced in Philippi when he said this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is more than you and I can imagine. So God's will is going to be hard. God's will is going to be different. But here's the good news. If we lived out God's desired outcome for our lives, I will guarantee you, when you look back over the difficulties of your life and the seasons of your life, you will say to yourself, that was better than I would have thought it would have been. That is greater than I've imagined. I can't come to a season in my life where I can't say that. I could say that about every season, even the darkest most difficult seasons of my life, I can look back on and say, I could have never imagined. I could have never come up with, I never could have orchestrated the outcome for my life like God has, has, has orchestrated that for me. And if we live that way, that means even when it's tough, I'm laying down my agenda, my desired outcome for my life. Why? So that God can fulfill his, because his is always better. You and I have to come to grips with that. God is better. Even when you don't know, God is better. Paul and Silas had that down. They understood that. And this is what I, I want to move towards closing with this, this story. You and I think when we get to the place where we finally get what we think we want and what we're desired, that finally we've arrived, God has blessed us, and now I'm living God's will. That's our kind of American way of understanding the way God works. But there's something better. I shared this a little bit in the DE4 class yesterday. But I have a friend, and uh, she lives up in Oregon. And when we met her, probably... Well, we met her coming up on 13 years ago, but probably about 10, 11 years ago, she came to this moment in her life that you would have never thought she would have made the decision in the context she was in. She is a mom of three great kids, um, loved her husband, great marriage. He had a great job. He was a vice principal and moving up and actually became a principal of a school and is continuing his career, going well. They lived in a great neighborhood. They lived four houses down from us. So, I mean, that's a great neighborhood living with amps. That's right. And so their life was good. I mean, she had a beautiful house, beautiful home, lots of income, living close to family, lots of friends. And you think, I can die happy, right? Doesn't that sound good? But something inside of her thought, there's something more. Something more than this. And at that time, our church had been really in kind of investing in the community and working with a lot of people who were struggling in a lot of different areas through different organizations and through things our church was doing. And she came upon something that she realized was a huge need in our city at that time. She discovered there were so many people living in poverty in the city that had no access to dental care. And there was, a, there was a free dental clinic that would pop up every once in a while, but it wasn't enough to meet the needs of all the people in the city who had major dental work that needed to be done. So this is a mother of three living in her, in her dream house with her dream husband in her dream life. And she says, somebody needs a dentist that's free. She hadn't gone to college yet. So what do you think she did? She went back to school. She went and got her bachelor's. And she now she's continued education. She's working in a dental office right now. And she's continued to volunteer her time. She's not a dentist yet, but she keeps moving forward. That's a long process. But she kind of gave up her happy life. She's still a wife to her husband and mother to her kids. But she's on this trajectory now that realizes that God's will for my life looks different than comfort and ease and everything I would have wanted to dream of in my life that would make me happy. There's got to be something more 
Because in the middle of that, she knows that people need dental care, but even beyond that, she knows that people need Jesus. And I share that because one of the challenges that so many times, and this is, I have to navigate this because I understand the, the tension. We've talked about the difference between calling and career. It just so happens that my calling and my career overlap. And so many people say, well, that's easy for you, Pastor John. I work a nine-to-five job, or I work 60 hours a week at another job, and, and you're telling me I'm supposed to find time to live out my calling? Yeah, I am. But it doesn't mean that you have to put in 100 hours a week to live out your calling. It means you look at your life differently. Does it mean that you need to change your job? Does it mean you need to go into full-time ministry or become a missionary unless God calls you to do that? But maybe you reorder your life and you look at it through a different lens and think, does God have something more? Is his desired outcome look different than mine? I'm not saying that every time it will, but a lot of times it will. And maybe there's something that God has out there for you that is better than even what you have right now, even though you think you have it good right now. Now, others are like, I don't got it good right now. Then good, easy, right? You'll give up what you got because you don't like it anyway. Trade it in for what God might have for you. Because I'm convinced, and this is what, if, if you haven't figured this out in me, if you haven't gotten to know me, what drives me is I am convinced that the body of Christ, the church, is not just a family, it's not just a community. You know what it is? It's an army. It's an army that has a mission, and that mission has existed for thousands of years, and the mission will not end with our generation unless Jesus comes back. But that means that no matter what we do for a living, we all have a calling that contributes to God's desired outcome for the world. And that is what I, I my prayer in ministry, my entire life has been, God, just let me be a part of something that makes a difference for your kingdom. I don't have to lead it, I just want to be a part of it. And that drives me. So what does that look like for us? What is God's will? What is God's desired outcome? I know one thing for sure, get in motion. Step forward. Just take one step in a direction you think God may be leading you, leading and then let him guide your steps and be ready for the no and be ready for the struggle and be ready for the pain, but then be ready to experience something that you could not possibly have imagined for your life because you live out God's outcome for your life, which includes his outcome for the world. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, I thank you for Paul and Silas and their courage. We know, Lord, that what they experienced 2,000 years ago, they did because they were filled with your spirit. They were convinced that you loved the world, and therefore, Lord, their life was on this default to go. The same spirit, Lord, that lived in them is the same spirit that lives in us, and we are so grateful. And so, Lord, I ask today that you would help us to have the courage to look at our lives differently. In fact, Lord, just as we started our service thinking, singing about the wonder of who you are, Lord, we see the world the Jesus way, your way, through the lens that you look at. And because of that, we can see life. We can see what you're about. We can see your desired outcome. So, Lord, today I pray that you would give us the courage to see our lives differently. Lord, not to, to do more, to work more, to work harder, somehow to justify ourselves, but, Lord, to be driven by this reality that you have something for us that is beyond our own imagination. You have something for us that when we look back in our lifetime, we can see that you have done something profound in us and through us. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us, we would see the opportunities that you give to us. And, Lord, if it's just one step today in your direction, Lord, that you would, even in that one step, you would guide us, you would direct us. Because, Lord, I know for each one of us, there's a Philippi that's out there. 
There's a place, there's a calling, there's a people, there's, there's relationship. Lord, whatever it's in our neighborhood or in our jobs or whatever it is in our families, there's that place where your, your kingdom is at work and your desired outcome is there. We just have to step into it. So by your spirit, would you give us the courage, Lord, to step into what you're doing so we can experience your desired outcome for our lives. In Jesus' name.